This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a, a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome to the Sub-70 podcast uh, Mike Hocking of OCM Design Firm from Australia. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time today. I've been looking forward to this conversation, especially uh, with the news coming out of Medina, and we'll get there in a little bit. But uh, thanks for taking the time. Truly appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. No problem, Seth. Nice to be here. Uh, well, I was going to ask you, what's sort of the, for the people who don't know, maybe the, the, the history or backdrop of OCM and, you know, how has the firm evolved over time and, you know, kind of working with uh, a legend on the PJ Tour, you know, with Jeff Ogilvie and all that stuff, sort of how did it start and how did you guys get to where you're at? Sure. Um, so I guess, so Ashley and I, so the other, the, the M in OCM, we've, we started working together in 2000, so we've kind of worked together for 22 years. Um, and Jeff and I have known each other since we were kids. We we all grew up in Melbourne. Um, Jeff and I kind of grew up around the sand. Well, we all grew up around the sandbelt courses, really. And he he and I played a bit of competitive golf together. Um, he was always better than I, um, naturally. But um, but yeah, we, so we sort of mixed in similar circles. So we knew each other for some time. Ashley and I had worked in design. Um, and then in 2010, Jeff had sort of shown some interest in maybe getting involved um, in some sort of capacity. So we, we basically started the company, uh, the new company then. Um, yeah, and when we've kind of, I think, you know, with most, design firms that the natural progression is you know you start off doing sort of some smaller um, plans and renovations and what have you that are kind of local to you and and you know we've done a lot of work around the Melbourne area and on the sand belt then you get a bit more sort of national recognition and then sort of uh, hopefully later you, you get more sort of internationally known and, that, and that's kind of the way it's happened with us we we work at a lot of the, the big clubs around Australia um, in all the states and then maybe five or six years ago we got a project in China after looking at a few different jobs uh, sort of through Asia it was a it was a fantastic job in um, Shanghai for a big company there and it was it was renovating a golf course um, and then in America we pitched on actually there's a course in um, oh you would know it uh, Trinity Forest mm-hmm. um, just in South Dallas yep. and um, we I kind of threw a friend. Uh, well, we we pitched on that and got very close. They they really liked our routing, um, but then Bill and Ben, um, sort of, at, I guess at the eleventh hour, d- decided to take a look at it. And you know, and, and it's a fairly, um, you know, natural choice to to go with those guys. That you know, leading firm in one of the leading firms in the world, and of course Ben, being a Texan. Um, but we stayed in contact, and I heard through a friend that Shady Oaks were looking to renovate their course. And I, I contacted the same guys at Trinity Forest and they just happened to be standing next to, to Bill Core, And Bill knew, was very good friends with the pro at Shady Oaks. And um, he sort of put a call in and suggested that they take a look at us. And um, I flew over and met Jeff at Shady Oaks and we spent a couple of days there. And, and that was kind of our foot in the door into America. We, we ended up winning that job. 
we completed the renovation there just in the lead up to COVID. Um, so I, I kind of left Texas in about March 2020. And then, yeah, that, that, that project went very well and that kind of then led to, to Medina, which has in turn led to a couple of other opportunities in America, which we're um, sort of hoping to announce in the next um, couple of months. Shady Oaks being an iconic place, especially with, you know, association with Mr. Hogan, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, w- yeah. W- when, so when, when, the, when the club gets to a point where they want to call it a restoration or a renovation, or when they, I'm assuming they wanted to bring it back to some of the original architectural lines, was that correct of where they sort of, was it change it or was it bring it back to its former glory per se? What was sort of the direction they went on that? Um, Shady was probably more of a, of a, um, a renovation, I guess, rather than a restoration. Um, you know, we felt that it, it, it was a lovely course, you know, beautiful oaks, live oaks sort of scattered around the, uh, around the property. Interestingly, um, Hogan warned um, Marvin Leonard, who developed the course. He, he, he kind of has an interesting history. He obviously built Colonial. And um, Colonial had been very successful and a small group of members suggested to him to build a, you know, a smaller club in um, a little bit further out in Fort Worth and then he started looking at property and, and Hogan kind of suggested that the, the, the property at Shady Oaks was too steep and too rugged. Um, but for, fortunately he went ahead with the project because it's actually, it is pretty hilly, uh, but it's dramatic. And um, particularly for Texas, which is kind of known as being a you know, fairly flat uh, a lot of a lot of flat terrain, so there's some really interesting kind of almost old barrancas running through parts of the property. A lot of elevation change, um, and whilst there are elements that we restored, we we felt the course could be could be improved. You know, it, it, it lacked a bit of um, strategy. There were quite a few holes where bunkers had sort of been positioned, say on the outside of dog legs, or um, you know, well into the rough greens that didn't necessarily sort of favour you know, an approach from one particular side of the failure or the other. And I guess the further we kind of went into the project, the less, um, well, the more open the club were to changes, you know. But probably at the very start, they were a little bit more attached to the current course and, and felt that, you know, they wanted to retain certain elements. But the further we went into it, um, the more open to change they were. And um, Very early on, we actually suggested working on the Little Nine, which is... It's actually where Mr. Hogan practiced. It was kind of a, a practice fairway in the middle of the course that had evolved to uh, a kind of a rudimentary short course. There were there were nine pretty simple greens and one or two bunkers out there, and um, you know our, our eyes lit up when we saw that because we've pitched that to so many different clubs over the years. You know this idea of a kind of a free form short course. You know somewhere you could play nine formal holes or you could go out with your friends and. And almost just pick the hole. The, win- the winner chooses the next hole, yeah, whether yeah. it's play some holes with par fours or par threes, and um, and it was it's also kind of the ultimate practice facility because you can practice every shot from you know a three hundred yard drive through to a two foot part. So that made a lot of sense to start there, and it was it was a nice chance too for the club and 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 us to get to know each other, for them to see how we work. Uh, to work in with the ground staff and, and the guys and, uh, on the ground as well. So when that turned out to be very successful, that, that kind of, I guess the gloves came off a little bit on the on the golf course itself. 
was it getting too heavily tree lined too, where there was no options off the tee, no width, no angles? It's a sort of paint by numbers golf course where you had to hit it from here to there, then there to there without having much, I don't know, yeah. what do you call it, variety or you're kind of pigeonholed into one style of golf. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it, there were, there were a few factors. I mean, there were certainly a number of holes where bunkers really didn't confront the golfer. You know, there wasn't really a decision to be made. Um, they were way off to the sides of the fairway, so they would tend to catch just a bad shot. Whereas, you know, so often the best place bunker is the one that's positioned just where you want to hit mm-hmm. your ball. So yep. you, kind of have, you have to make a decision, you know, do I lay up short of it, try and slide it by it, try and carry it? You know, what, what do I do? Um, the course had got very narrow as well, even though the, the corridors were actually quite wide. Um, so it was, it was a hard course for the average golfer. But, you know, it's, it's never going to be, a, unfortunately, there's just not enough length to make it a, you know, a, a, a tour-length yeah. golf course. It's a member's you know? golf course. It's a member's golf course. It's a member's course. golf course. Yeah. It's just, I think if you really want to stretch it, you, you might almost get it to 7,000 yards, but it's not quite. It's a little bit under that. Um, and then, yeah, as you said, you know, trees, there are a few holes. There was, there's actually a river that uh, kind of runs through, it, it dissects 14 and 15, which are consecutive par fives. And on the 14th, they'd, they'd planted trees over the years alongside the water. So it, had kind of, it, kind of, it would be like planting trees in front of the creek on the 13th of Augusta. Yeah. So it's like it, it kind of took away this, this probably the best looking shot on the course where you could be you're hitting your second shot all across water if you wanted to go for the green in two. Um, and it sat on a really nice diagonal. So the average golfer could kind of play well away from the water but get a, a harder angle into the green. Or, you know, if you wanted to take on the water and, and it came off, you had a, you got a reward. So there was some sort of kind of simple strategic um, opportunities to improve holes. Um, and, and it was interesting. We did do a bit of removal, but typically it was removing the trees that had been planted. It wasn't the original old oaks. And um, as soon as we did that, it started really opening up just how great the property is because there, there was like a big rocky sort of shelf, for instance, on one hole, a big drop-off that was totally overgrown. We didn't even know what this ground was like. And it was only once we removed all the, all the clutter and all of the, the overgrown sort of vegetation, it kind of... It opened up this incredible bit of ground, um, which we ended up sort of taking taking advantage of. We were able to sort of slide. It was a par three hole, and we were able to slide the green right over next to this huge drop off and kind of cut some bunkers into the rocky ground. And um, so, yeah, it was kind of a yeah. You know, we knew some of these holes would be good, but as we started getting into the construction, started clearing areas, it really it it really highlighted even more opportunities to to take advantage of the site. You're preaching to the choir. We're, and it's, I've, I've had heated debates at the, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be a member at Kishwaukee Country Club, which is a club built in 1901, same architect who originally designed, uh, Medina. And, oh, excuse right. me. Yeah, it's a Bendelow. And yeah. you can see the original lines and then somebody, some genius in the 60s or 70s when they wanted to make every golf course look like a U.S. Open, they planted the secondary trees. And the, the lines, there's, you know, when we were talking about it just gets one dimensional. It, it turns into one dimensional yeah. golf. You have to hit it to there. You get, you know, you got roots potentially causing problems. And it's like, I try to show the guys like, you know, they want the golf course because it's always been this way that that's how it's supposed to be. The older guys, I'm like, but there's no variety. There's no angles. Yeah. There's no width. And then the course, you know, the rough has no, 
you know, rough really around it because there's no sunlight. These new, you can see the new trees versus the old trees. And like, it'd be so much better if they yanked it. So like you're preaching to the choir of what I would love to do at my home club. If I could just take a magic eraser and get rid of a bunch of them. But where did, where did architecture go wrong where they started saying, let's plant, was it the, like everyone wanted their golf course to look like a U.S. Open from the 60s and 70s? So they put fast-growing trees and not realizing the consequences of what they were doing? It seems like there's so many courses that lost their golden age, air quotes, sort of character to making it look like a miniature yeah. U.S. Open golf course from 1986. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it it's certainly not unique, um, that kind of evolution that you described. Um, yeah, I mean, from a strategic point of view, you know, you, you just can't build strategy into holes without width. You know, it's such a key component. The, the idea that you can penalise someone for being on one side of the fairway or reward someone on the other side if the fairway is only 25 yards yeah. wide is just, you know, it's, it's impossible. And, um, you know, you look at all the great old, golden age courses you look at the old aerials and 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 typically they were at least 40 yards wide 50 yards wide 60 yards wide so they were nice big wide courses um i remember talking with uh tom doke years ago about it and um he felt he thought one of the big changes that had occurred was um the advent of automated irrigation because way back in the 30s and 40s when irrigation systems were first being looked at they were single row sprinklers down the middle of the fairway. Yeah, that's and of course they would only throw thirty yards wide. Right. So, so a lot of these courses that were sixty yards wide um, almost shrunk overnight, and then so suddenly all the bunkers that were in the fairway were suddenly in the rough, and then you had these big expanses of rough that's like, well, what do we do with them? So trees were planted, and it just kind of started tangenting uh, this tangent off, you know, the original design intent to this, you know, narrow confined restricted golf course um, and we've sort of got to the generation we're in now where architects are starting to address that um, but a lot of that damage was done I think through the 40s and 50s and 60s yeah we're um, yeah like I said it looks like a miniature US opener the other thing that drives me nuts is putting like we have a beautiful little creek running through our backside then they double hazard it you know where they planted a bunch of trees I'm like, so oh, yeah. a, right yeah. in the in front. So you now you've got this tree overhanging part of the fairway because it's overgrown, and there's a creek down that side behind the tree. It's like, yeah, you, you don't need both, right? It, take the tree out; it'd yeah. be a better sight line. It's it shortens the hole, so there'd be a risk reward if there was some width, and there's water there. So if you pull it too much, you're already in trouble. They seem to do a lot of double hazarding too. You know, trees in front of bunkers yeah. or stuff like that. It's like. How you know? See the original architecture from Bendelow, what he was trying to do. Like it's not that; it's this. No, unfortunately, you know, you you don't need a permit to plant a tree, but quite often you need one to remove it. And so, a lot of well-meaning people over the years, you know, have seen a gap or you know an opportunity to you know so-called strengthen the golf course, or whether it's to preserve the par, or because someone went around there in a in a in a low score and yeah, they were just sort of over treed for a number of decades. And, you know, once the tree gets to 30 or 40 feet or 50 feet, it's a, it becomes a big deal to remove it. Yeah. It's expensive um, too. Right. I mean, we, I mean, yeah. 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 And you just don't notice, you know, the, the incremental growth, I think with vegetation too, like even, even guys that know what they're looking at, you just, if you're at the same course for, for 10 years or 20 years, you just don't see that kind of weekly, monthly, yearly, growth and just over time you know holes just 
um, get further and further away from the original intent. What do you think? I mean, we kind of you said they had width and they had strategy from Scotland from the gold, the guys who did Golden Age, the the icons of it. Yeah. And in these courses, yes, some of them aren't long enough to hold, you know, have a tour event. But a good amateur can still play and really enjoy, you know, a classic Seth Rayner. They've stood the test of time. What, yeah. What did those guys, or how did they do that back then? Imagine without all of the the aids modern architecture has of, you know, aerials and stuff. They could, I mean, they sort of just did it, and it, it's still my favorite. You know, if you go play. Yeaman's Hall Club or, or you know, Chicago Golf Club or name all of them, right? Like a Seth Rayner golf course, yeah. if it's if it's restored or brought back to the original lines, it's just they're masterpieces and they're 100 years old. Like what did those guys, yeah. in your opinion, when you go see something like that, how the hell did they do that? And then how the hell is it still so good 100 years from now where you're like, that's just the greatest experience ever of walking the Yeaman's and playing it. Like it's just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of, it was such an interesting period because they kind of, they'd just come out of that era, that sort of Victorian era late in the 1800s when the sort of, I guess, the purpose of bunkers was seen as being to penalise bad shots. So, you know, a lot of those penal courses, bunkers were either you know, straight across a fairway or down the sides of the fairway. And it's almost like the worse the shot, the worse the, the hazard would be or the worse the penalty was. And, <clears throat> You know, Rayner and Mackenzie and Tillinghast and Thomas and, you know, all that group of Golden Age architects that we kind of refer to them as today saw the game differently. You know, they were, they were quite revolutionary because, you know, they, they sort of said essentially that, um, you know, the game's hard enough for... This is all backwards. You know, the game's hard enough for the average golfer. We need to make it easier for them and harder for the good golfer. So the, the hazard should be placed exactly where... You want to hit your ball too, and if you play away from that spot, the shot to the green becomes a little bit harder. And and that was kind of the where strategic golf was was born with those guys. Um, I think you know they were incredibly creative, and I think some of the reason we had these you know so many interesting designs is that they were still sort of finding their way. They were they were being really creative. They didn't have this notion that's weighed upon them of what a great golf course is or what a course should be and you know, all these sort of preconceived rules, so to speak, that people get way too hung up on, like, you know, returning nines and par seventy two and four par fives and four par threes and oh no, you can't do this, you can't have a blind shot or you can't do this and toning greens down and the distance from you know a putting surface to the surrounding bunker. You know, there's a period there where people want to run a triplex mold between a green and a bunker, but all that does is water down the purpose of the bunker. You know, you want to cut the bunker as close to the green as possible. And so I, th- I think we kind of got in our own way a little bit there for a period, and um, and it, it stifled people's creativity. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly. I think, you know, the last 20 years has seen a resurgence to, you know, I think that's why we've seen so much restoration work. People are rediscovering, you know, the genius of these architects and wanting to see, you know, all of these great courses returned. I agree. And I think it's if you get the opportunity to play it and if you, you know, if you do get to play it, they're just so enjoyable. It's so much fun. Of, of having yeah. some variety and width and, you know, one day that bunker might be in play and one day it might not based on the wind. And you're like, how did Mr. Rayner know to put that there? It's just genius. 
you know, of the thought process of how you then play that hole. And it makes you think. They did a wonderful job of, like, I think their bunkering, like, from that era is just superb of you yeah. have to think your way around the golf course a little bit, right? It's not just hit to that one point. It's, okay, exactly what you're saying. Do I take this risk-reward on? Can I carry this today? Do I need to play conservative and just make a par here and get out of dodge, and I'll be more aggressive on the downwind hole? But then on the downwind <laughs> hole, there might be something from the previous day you didn't notice or see that's now in play. But they're fair. Yeah, okay. that's right. And and sometimes the decisions are confusing, which is brilliant. You know, you stand there, and the wind's coming from a different direction or the pin's in a different position, and you might have your hand on you know five or six clubs. You're just not sure what to hit. And that's I think that's one of the the great signs of a, or the signs of a great hole is that it, it's not always an obvious decision. It's not just, you know, that was one of the issues at, say, Shady Oaks. There were so many of the par fours, you never once thought about what to hit. You just put your hand, you just grab the driver and hit away and just tried to get it as long and as straight as you possibly could. Whereas, you know, a sign, I think, of, you know, so many great two-shotters is that indecision. You know, mm-hmm. what do I do? Yes, and then making it not the same every day. Wind can change. Yeah. Elements yeah. can change. Yeah, not making the same. Yeah, but not making every hole that same decision. You know, there's there's light and shade between. You know, across the whole golf shore. Ex- exactly. Uh, well, you know, I'm outside Chicagoland, so Medina is iconic. You know, so is Medina <laughs> three. So yeah. I, okay, I'm going to start off with a tough one here for you. In you don't have to throw uh-huh. anybody under the bus, but. No, no. They just redid it, and you know, before the Ryder Cup in 0809, I knew they took out. I don't know. 1500 trees out there because it was it was a shit show before they did the reach jones doing it in the sense that you know they had no you had to limit play and there was i mean it's way overgrown right so they improved that side of it so they do this big renovation project Ryder cups out there what what caused these guys again now to say hey it's only been 15 years let's redo it was it the guys shooting 25 under par uh, you know, cutting dog legs? Was it just the membership saying this course is one-dimensional? Like, what What did they kind of, lack of over, I'm asking to throw anyone of the bus, said, but get wrong. Like, what went wrong when they did this 15 years ago? And then how are you guys going to try to, you know, make it as good as you guys can make it? Or what's the sort of vision of it going forward? Yeah, yeah. Um, I suspect there was a range of issues that kind of threw up the idea of, you know, a potential redesign. Um, purely from a, um, I guess, a infrastructure point of view, like there's no there's no drainage system out on course three. So every time it rains, it, it kind of floods. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think we all aspire to is firm, firm playing conditions. Yep. You know, it's one of the keys to build strategy into holes. It's, it's hard to do that if the greens are like puddings. And, you know, you can... You can even if you're out of position, you can hit a nine iron and, and, and the ball's going to stop. So there's not really a, a decent drainage system out there. Um, you know, I think the, the better players, it's kind of an example of what I was talking about before. One of the challenges, I think, at all of the, you know, at any tournament level golf course is you, you're trying to make it fun and interesting and fair for the average golfer, but challenging for, or and interesting for for the for the games elite, and it had become pretty obvious that it was sort of doing the opposite to that. Um, course is incredibly difficult for the average golfer. Tight fairways, pretty penal water that you have to play across, um, and yet the really elite the games elite are shooting 
you know, 25 under. And it's, and it's a long golf course. It's well, like, but not when you're cutting dog legs over and all of a sudden a 460-yard hole is now a driver and a flip wedge. I, you know, I can't do that. They could, correct. and all of a sudden now it doesn't no. even matter. And the greens were so soft. It's, you can't, I don't care if the car, of course, was 7,800 yards. It's, if they can cut dog legs with soft greens, yeah. they're going to shoot a night, you know, a million under. There's just no way around it. That's right. And holes like that, holes like 9 and 11 and 16, those sort of dog, sharp dog legs with trees on the corner, um, had done exactly that. I mean, they they didn't defend the hole against the long hitters. They just hit it across the corner, yet they're impossible for the short hitters who couldn't reach the corner and face an, an impossible second behind a wall of trees. Right. So, you know, and, and then I, I guess in the background there was probably some thoughts about the course ranking um, and... I think seeing all the other work that's been going on in the last decade was probably a factor too. You know, so many of the great old country clubs had been restored or were going through some sort of renovation again. Um, and so I think sort of a range of issues, but, but things, simple things like, you know, even renovation aside, there are some fundamental things there that really need to be addressed. You know, the, the greens suffer agronomically. They're very, very small. There's not a lot of kind of access and egress points drainage system, the irrigation system. So it's kind of, there are some, some things that really need to be addressed, whether or not we were in there as the architects or not. Um, so, yeah, so it's, kind of, it's probably a, a range of issues, not one particular issue, I would suggest. Um, lots in terms of, lots of trees coming out too. Sorry. Are you guys going to be pulling Well, there's out? some spots. Yeah, there are. I mean, not lots, but... You know, holes like like those dog legs that I was talking about. Not so much 16 because we can we can actually improve that hole by moving by removing the 15th. We can actually get that tee on 16 in a much better position. Um, so you're sort of hitting down the hole rather than across the corner. Yeah. But holes like nine and 11 are difficult to kind of improve without addressing the trees. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at all the great dog legs of the world, that pretty much all are defended by ground hazards on the inside corner. And, you know, you have that decision we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. There's very few examples of great dog legs where there's trees kind of on, on the corner of the dog leg. And, and look, fortunately, you know, from a historical point of view, those trees have been planted. They weren't original trees. So it makes the argument a little easier when you're talking about kind of trying to restore some of the original intent um, back from the 30s. It's, I, I think there's less attachment to the trees when you can kind of demonstrate that this has actually moved away from the original the original concept. And fortunately, they're not the beautiful... I mean, those old oaks that are dotted around the property are unbelievable. And fortunately, we're preserving, you know, as many of those, well, really all of those um, throughout the property. There's only... There's a little bit of removal in a couple of spots. But, you know, we're not going to lose that feel of what kind of makes... Course three feels so good, you know that big scale, the lake, yeah. the oaks, the undulating terrain. It's still going to feel like Madonna, um, but you know the holes are going to be um, going to be changed a little. Is is it a tough project in the sense that they're still? I'm assuming I don't know this to be a fact, but I'm guessing they still want to hold professional tournaments there. So it has to be able to be playable for the members, hopefully fun. But when the best in the world potentially come out there, it's got to be able to play how the club wants it to sort of play. So is that where, like, having Jeff helps a lot, where he can look at this from the professional aspect and look at what's going on and get that part of it, while you guys can also still try to make it fun for the members, and even for a guy who's a 15 handicap to not get his teeth kicked in at course three? Is that a a tough balancing act? 
It is, um, you know, that's and it's become tougher in the last few decades because of the technological advances in you know, golf equipment. But the, the professional game and the average golfer's game have never been further apart. Um, certainly easier back in the persimmon days when just the, the sheer length of an average golfer versus a pro was perhaps a little closer together. Um, but yeah, it, that is a, one of our great challenges. Um, yeah, and I think you can look at, if you look at some of the courses around the world that do that very well and look at some of the, the, the features of those courses, I mean, it, so, some really great examples are actually local here to us on the sand belt. You know, you've got, they're probably some of the most playable championship courses in the world because they're wide. Um, they don't distort them by narrowing fairways leading into a tournament. They, they, they keep the width, but they're brilliant green complexes. You know, and they'll use tilt, they'll use the, the hazards themselves, plus they're, they're firm, firm. So, you know, the fairway might be 50 yards wide, but you have to be in the left quarter to get the angle to a particular pin. And every yard you're away from that spot, the shot to the green just becomes you know, increasingly harder and harder and harder. So certainly trying to get a little bit more width out there helps the average golfer. Um, improving the green complexes um, puts more of a premium on position back in the fairway. We want to improve the relationship between, say, the, the putting surface and the surrounding bunkers. You know, one of the, one of the things we don't like about um, air quotes here, um, parkland, you know, US parkland style courses, is quite often you see bunkers in the rough. You see that five yards of rough between the fairway and yeah. the fairway bunkers or the five yards of rough between the putting surface and the, and the, and the bunkers. And we look at this because in Australia, we, you know, we, we try and build our bunkers hard up against the putting surface. Um, in some instances, on the sand belt, we actually have no collar. So we've got putting surface right to the edge of the hazard. Now, that's not possible at Medina just because of the soil, but we can certainly get it like a foot away. Yeah. And then suddenly you've got more interesting pins. You know, you can, you can tuck a pin 10 foot behind a bunker and you can slope the, the putting surface away from the bunker to the pin. So suddenly, you know, you're out of position. You've got an incredibly hard shot across a bunker um, with the green sloping away. So it, for a professional, it, it's making the course harder. More short grass around the greens making it harder because at the moment, you know, they, they just take dead aim. If the pin's tucked in the corner, if they know there's rough around that green, they're not worried about missing the green because um, the ball's only going to finish a couple of yards off it. Correct. But suddenly if you've got shaved banks, you know, and, and missing the green means the ball's running 30 yards away, 25 yards away, or finishing in the bunker, suddenly it's putting a little bit more pressure on them back in the fairway to hit to position or to think about, well, you know, what if I miss this? Where do I want to miss it? Um, you know, and, and they're not new ideas. They're kind of golden age ideas, but um, I think they've just been lost over, the, over time. Wasn't it fun to watch the brilliance of Tiger at that, uh, you know, the President's Cup of playing, you yeah. know, of, of the strategy he used and just, you know, meticulously kind of taking the golf course apart. And yet some bombers were like a little bit like, I, what do I do here? I mean, I'm a little, oh man, I got this 52-yard shot, but I am kind of in trouble on this. And it just shows like the, the brilliance of mind and strategy for those guys who really played well that week. And it was so refreshing to watch that a little bit. I, I think the area you're at, I haven't been over there to play it, but from the guys I've talked to said it may be the best region in the world of golf courses, that that sandbelt region in Australia yeah. might be as good as anywhere in the world. Would you set a pretty fair yeah. statement? Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. 
and it's you know one of the wonderful things too is that they're accessible you know it's not it's they're not overpriced they're not you know pretty much anyone can join them as long as you know four or five members you know it's very um very accessible golf um we have a lot of rounds we we typically have more rounds on the sand belt than say the 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 top end country clubs they might play 40 45,000 rounds per year on on each of the sand belt courses um and it's pretty cheap golf but um brilliant maintenance um some of the best greens in the world and and yeah it's fascinating to watch someone like tiger um both last year or the president's cup but also sort of a decade ago when he won kingston heath which is um which is my home club um you know he just he was just you could sort of see his mind ticking over you know as he as he played the course one of the one or two of the days he wasn't playing that well but he still kind of he just knew where to miss it he totally understood the golf course and understood the strategies yeah um yeah, I mean, if he played on the sand belt every week, I'd hate to think what his record would be. He would, <laughs> he'd almost be unbeatable, I think. Does have you have you been a member at Kingston Heath for a long period of time? Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, there in um, Peninsula um, Kingswood, which is, of course we we, we renovated as well. I, I sort of play. Well, I'm a member at both of those. But yeah, I've been at Peninsula for thirty years, and and Kingston Heath for probably ten, ten so, or fifteen. So you've played Kingston Heath nine million times. Is it still, you know, once again, I've heard it's one of the best golf courses in the world. Does it still grab your interest to today when you're out there playing that you may still have a shot you may have not exactly ever had before? Does it still make your mind think? Is it still when you're done playing around? Are you like, this is just brilliant? Like it's just brilliant. Totally, yeah. And because for those reasons we we're talking about before, I mean, so a whole like the third there is a short par four built on not very good land. You know, it's, it's pretty flat ground. It wasn't an obvious hole, and um, but it's just brilliant. It's all through great design and great construction, and it just it's constantly changing. It's only it's 330 yards. You can drive it if you want, um, or if you if you're lucky. But anything from kind of a six iron through to a driver off the tee is a legitimate play. And so, and you you just. It just changes all the time. Depends on the wind. Depends on how you're playing, where the pin is, um, and there's a bunch of holes there like that. So it's, it's, it just keeps you engaged. Doesn't matter how many times you play it, it keeps you engaged. And whereas I guess you know one of the criticisms of, of um, you know somewhere like perhaps Medina is that you, you're not getting those those decisions aren't there all the time. You know it's very predictable how the ball's going to bounce, where you're going to finish. And the sort of shots you can hit off the tee, and that's what we'd we'd really like to change as part of the renovation is is increasing that that interest and that idea of you know variety and, um, and strategy, of course. Well, well, if you're if you're you know bored with the project and want to come out to Kishwaukee Country Club, about fifty miles west of here, <laughs> which here come with a bulldozer, some dynamite. We'll get rid of some trees and, and go back to the original <clears throat> Bendelo lines. I, I would I would be happy. Yeah. You're, oh, I, uh, it's always just such an interesting debate of like, I, like we can have this conversation. I totally understand where you're coming from. It's like some of the guys are like, I, I know I just want it really hard. I just want it like tree lined and brutally difficult. I'm like, but why? It'd be it's so much better when you yeah. talk about that option like this great little 330 yard hole, and yet you might play it five different ways, and you might make a double bogey out of nowhere. You're like, oh shit, where did that just come from? Or the next round, you might make a birdie. And it's just can yeah. right. Those are the greatest holes that give you that options variety makes you think and can 
you can make a birdie or it can bite you in the ass if you start playing it wrong from the start and you're out of position. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, how in yeah. the world did I just make a six there? You did? Yeah. That's, uh, you guys are you're going the right way. <clears throat> yeah, and the, the short holes are sometimes the best. I mean, we, we love kind of short par threes, drivable par fours, reachable par fives, because they're, they're not out of reach for the mere mortal. You know, one one good swing on a 130-yard par three, and even a 20 marker can have a birdie. But yeah, the best golfers in the world can be humbled. You know, if if you use all of the some of those design characteristics we we're talking about before, I mean, they can walk off with a bogey or a double. Um, that's kind of the perfect hole, where you're never going to see that on a 500-yard par four. Yes, and it's like I've said this. Uh, I've never gotten to play Augusta National, but I played a. There's a golf course in Dallas, Texas called like Tour 18, so it has copycats of the greatest holes. Oh in the yeah, world, right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you yeah. didn't know yeah. you're playing a copycat golf course. The three best holes on that whole golf course are Amen Corner. The little par three yeah. with the way the green is, right? The par five is brilliant, yeah. right? You're on the edge yeah. and you're like, oh, geez, you know, do I go with this? Well, I lay it up and I've got a downhill sort of lie to this. It's just brilliant, right? And all three of the holes in Amen yeah. Corner have all of those elements. It's with a short little par three. And if you didn't know they were the Augusta-style holes, you would just be, that is just genius, whoever put those three holes together. Because every one of those holes you're thinking yeah. – with yeah. options, yeah. you know, how aggressive do you want yeah. to get? And it's, it, yeah. to me, that's how golf should be played. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm yeah. so looking forward to seeing what you guys can. I'm so excited to see uh, Medina, fortunate, uh, you know, we know some members out there. So when the renovation happens, I can't wait to get back out there and see what you guys are going to do with it. Because it sounds like it's just going to be, you're going to preserve what makes it Medina, but kind of bring some of those elements that we both seem to enjoy in golf into it which I think will be so much better. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, it kind of describes the, it describes the aim very well. So. Well, I was going to ask you this, too. We'll take the sand belt out of it because you get to play them all the time. But if you were going to play, you know, two or three other cor- or golf courses that, you know, you've, you've seen around the world, was there a couple others that are just absolutely brilliant in, in your mind and what makes them great? Yeah, I, can't, I, think, of, I think in terms of regions, probably. Um, I love... Uh, Long Island in obviously New York, um, the kind of the Heathland region just around London, um, West Coast of America and, and the Sand Belt. They're kind of my four. Well, and, and, and the, the region around St. Andrews, um, mm-hmm. in Scotland. So, I mean, St. Andrews is probably my sort of, you know, I guess hand on heart favorite golf course. You know, if I had to play one course for the rest of my life, I would play there. And some of that, I think, is the you know is the historical factor yes. leaking in. You know, walking the fairways, thinking of you know old Tom and um, right back to Mary Queen of Scots. And you know, I constantly am amazed by that course because you know it was found. You know, it was never really designed. I mean, those the bunkers evolved, the routing evolved, um, and yet, and no one really designed it, so to speak. I mean, old Tom did a few things and. The, some minor things, minor changes have occurred, but essentially it's the, it's the same landscape it was 400 years ago, and yet it might be the most interesting strategic golf course in the world. You know, I, I, I'm constantly amazed by that. Um, so I'd probably put that in there. Um, I do love that sort of National Golf Links, um, Shinnecock Hills kind of part of, of Long Island, New York, Fry's Head. Um, and I'll throw in Cypress Point on the West Coast as well. I'd, I'd be pretty happy with <laughs> playing my golf at those three areas. Have you been out to the Sand Hill region of Nebraska in the United States? 
I have. On yes, I, Ashley and I were in the states for about eight weeks last year. Um, so in kind of August, July, August, and we came through. Yeah, we played um, Sand Hills and came through that whole region. Um, went down and popped into Prairie Dunes again. I, I do enjoy um, Prairie Dunes. It's a, it's a fantastic golf course as well. And, yeah, I mean th- those sand those sand hills just continue forever. It was much bigger than I expected. I wasn't thinking they stretched on for just that far. I, th- I thought it was going to be a much smaller pocket of you know great ground and here's sand hills and then you get back to the the flat charming ground. But that took me by surprise. You know, you could fit a hundred golf courses out there if you really want. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of raw land for cows to graze out there. But yeah, you can drive in that area and you can almost just see holes, right? You can be driving down the road and be like, ah, oh, yeah. there's a little par three. You could put the tee box right there. There's yeah. your green. There's your blowout bunker. I mean, it's just amazing yeah. how good that land is for for golf courses. It really is. You know, all the best golf courses, you know, for the most part. If you can get sand for your base, there's a there seems to be a correlation for. The more sand you got, the better the golf course normally is. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you can see how, you know, it took so long and there were so many different uh, possibilities at Sandhills, for instance, because you could pretty much just go in any direction and find golf holes. I think you know, had, the property was so big. Yeah, they had over 100 holes, I think, to pick from. And the toughest so. part was narrowing yeah. it down to 18. Yeah, and I think Bill went back to the owner and said, I really want to purchase the land next door. There was a little pocket that he wanted to buy. That's right. And he's yep. like, you kid like we've got a thousand acres or whatever it was you want to buy more yeah. <laughs> there's not enough for you but, and i think they did it they did a land swap i have a feeling um with the neighbor where they got this little bit of extra land and, and gave him a, another chunk that they didn't need yeah that so. place is a masterpiece it really is it's <laughs> they did such a good job with that golf course and it's so fun to play i've been fortunate to play it it's yeah it might be my favorite in the united states it's it's up there it's really 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 good yeah and they nailed it it's just got such a such a great vibe too. You know, that's one of the that sort of culture is so hard to create um, in in at a golf course. You know, you can build the best course in the world, but if that sort of vibe and culture is not there, it just it doesn't quite have it. But it was amazing, just the the feeling of you know once you get into the cabin there and just on the course and you know just had had an amazing feel to it. Will you guys at some point with the work you're getting uh, be opening an office in the United States, you think? Will that be – is that a is that on the radar where you're going to have to have a, a place over here as well as it sort of seems like your one job's leading to the next job, leading to the next job sort of in the States here? Yeah, it could. It's, it's probably more the um, – where ideally we would have a, a group of um, some shapers over there that kind of we start to – um, have a relationship where they can kind of go from one course to the next. That's probably the area. I mean, we get used to the travel. Um, we 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 kind of we we do have an office, or we've got, we've got a small office in Arizona, which is sort of linked to um, the management company that used to um, or that looks after Jeff over there. So we we do sort of have a a base we can use um, in Scottsdale, but the key for us is more that. Um, shapers and, and perhaps project manager um, that we can use on some of these projects because it's just it's tricky to bring guys out from Australia yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, there's the visa issues but B some of our guys have got young families and you know it's probably not practical for them to to just go and leave home for nine months or um, 12 months so that's that's the area we're finding that um, is a bit more challenging and you know, and as you say, you know, one course is sort of leading to the next, and and we've got a couple of other opportunities at the moment that are that are new courses, and um, 
So just trying to assemble that crew. Um, and, and golf is booming in America. You know, yeah. golf, like here, it's, so there's a lot of projects on the go. So finding good guys is, is the challenge at the moment. But hopefully, you know, hopefully we can develop those relationships. Because it, it feels like pr- probably 50% of our business will be based in America, certainly in the next you know, five to seven years. But it, it may well, hopefully, it continues on well after that. What's more fun, build from from scratch or a restoration renovation? Is there a certain if you could pick one or the other? And I'm sure there's pluses and minuses. Is do you have a favorite with your guys' firm that you would rather do in a perfect world? I think in a perfect world, you, you're doing the new build, <clears throat> um, just because you know you you're able to. It's kind of you've, you're able to fully express all your you know design ideas. I guess you're, you're not in you're not inheriting anything um and we take a very holistic view to all of our courses we kind of like to be involved with everything that's going to affect the look or the play of the holes it's not just it's not just everything within the the fairway shape and the green shape we're looking at the overall property and and we like trying to create that experience and that feel so i think a new course where you're, you're basically helping plan the entire facility as well as the design. You know, you're looking at how, how golfers are getting into the site, other features, short courses, practice facilities, where the clubhouse is located, just how that whole thing works, and then getting right down into the nitty-gritty of, of the actual design of the course and building it. So I would say new, but we, we have done a lot of renovation work, particularly in Australia, and, and it is, it's nice too. I mean, I, I quite, we quite like looking at the history of golf courses we're, you know we obviously um, have a lot of reverence for, for the great old architects of, uh, of yesteryear and even if it's not a, rest, a pure restoration it is still interesting looking back and seeing how the course has evolved and seeing why it's got to the point where it's at um, yeah that was one of the interesting things at Medina that very, we're very fortunate to have some really good historical records there so we've got some great aerials, great plans, and we were able to overlay Bendelau's original design onto the current layout and kind of see how it's evolved to this point. You know, we've, we've found some really interesting um, documents from, it appears Tillinghast was involved there in the 30s, but no one can really determine to what extent. But when we overlaid the aerial and, and drew the outline of, of the bunkers, it's quite clear that you know, the original bunker shape, I mean, these were some really bold, interesting shaped bunkers, um, kind of all the hallmarks of the golden age, um, wider fairways, more fairway back towards the tee. Um, it was a very interesting golf course. And so even though it's not a pure restoration, it's probably a third of the golf course we're looking at restoring elements. Um, there's a couple of holes, three and four, we're, we're kind of putting back the original bunkers because um, they, the fourth hole there, which kind of the, the second shot plays up the hill, that the hill there, the second half of that hole was just smothered with bunkers up left and right. I mean, it must have been an incredibly good-looking hole. And, um, you know, we found reports from the in the 40s where they were at, at a Greens Committee level uh, because of the war, they were trying to cut cut costs. And so there was a suggestion to just start filling in bunkers. And so that's what they did. So, But I find that very interesting to, to be able to kind of piece together, well, this this is what you had and this is why it changed. It wasn't... It was no one's fault. I mean, no one was doing it. They were doing it in the best interest of the club, but then, um, you know, generations pass by and, and, and no one remembers that, no one knows that. But, um, 
So, yeah, I, I find that a very interesting part of our job, um, just kind of trying to fit the pieces together again. So so Mr. Bendelow had some pretty good ideas back in the day of let's make a really great golf course. It's kind of interesting. You go back and you can kind of tip your hat to him from what it sounds like and go, well done, sir. That was a well-designed golf hole Absolutely. 100 years ago or 90 years ago, whatever it may be at this point. Yeah. I mean, we we kind of – it's almost divided into thirds, I would say, the course. Like there's kind of a third of the course where we are looking to restore elements. There's a third where we're sort of retaining existing holes and tweaking them, kind of um, holes like 12, for instance, just kind of keep, essentially keeping the, the fundamentals of the hole but just making some tweaks. And then there's six holes that are kind of a major – departure from what they've got um and that's kind of the last six holes really from 13 through to 18 where we're we're rerouting the holes well best of luck with this project um and congratulations that's a it's a you know it's such an iconic club and you know you guys must be doing a lot right for that club to give you the nod for that project it is it is a that golf course is chicago outside chicago we have a lot of pride in that golf course it's you know it's held our majors it's iconic. So what a cool project to get to work on. So we're definitely rooting for you to kind of get the oh, vision. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, where you guys want to get. I'm sure you guys will do a great job. Like, your work speaks for itself. So thank you so much for coming on. And uh, like I said, looking no forward problem. to seeing that project and, and see what you guys can do with it. It's exciting stuff. Fantastic. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me.